Welcome to New Creation, a home for the creative community of Los Angeles. For more information, visit our website at newcreationla.com. And now, the sermon. For you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who is his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The war in Afghanistan. You've probably seen, if you've been reading the news, Images like this over the last week. You've seen and heard of terrible things happening in Afghanistan as the Taliban has taken over the country. In April of this year, it was announced that the U.S. would withdraw its troops. And by the end of July, we had 650 troops remaining to protect the U.S. Embassy of Kabul. And last Sunday, Taliban fighters entered the capital, and that led to the president of Afghanistan uh, fleeing the country and the Afghan government to collapse. And so we now have a massive refugee crisis, and the advances in rights for women and girls are all facing reversal. Uh, The neighboring countries are competing for influence in Afghanistan, and religious freedom has uh, disappeared. Uh, I read a story just this morning of uh, Taliban members uh, going and taking people's cell phones, and if they find a Bible on your cell phone, they immediately execute you. So that that is the state there right now. There's been all kinds of debate on whether we should have stayed. Should we stay and fight the good fight? Is this a good fight? How long should we continue to fight? It's been 20 years already. Well, these are really good and important questions, and I'm not going to attempt to answer those today. But we have these same questions in our text that you heard read this morning. We've been going through the book of 1 Timothy and looking at the direction for the church, for God's community. And we find ourselves today at the very end of the book, which the Apostle Paul wrote to his apprentice Timothy at the church of Ephesus. And where we left off last week was where Paul was warning 
uh, against these false teachers who are distorting the gospel message, the message of salvation. And Paul was revealing their love of money in doing so. And so our passage this morning, uh, Paul starts by telling the church of Ephesus to flee those things, to flee that love of money, to flee that false teaching, and to fight the good fight. So I want us to dig into this text and see God's direction for his people, his community, the church, and see how and when they are supposed to fight the good fight. So let's go to our first couple verses, uh, verses 11 and 12. I don't wanna read those for us one more time. But you, O man of God, flee from all this, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. All right, so Paul's first direction here is to run. It's to flee from all of this. And so he says to flee from these things, that is the love of money that he had been talking about and all the evils associated with it. Now, as humans, when we find ourselves in danger, we have a a fight or flight tendency, right? And so uh, this is uh, the flight component of this. When are we supposed to run? Now, normally, I think we want to run from the things that threaten us. Uh, Oftentimes, we want to run from responsibilities that we don't want to shoulder. But here, what it's talking about is that when we see ungodliness, We are to flee it. We are to run from it. We are to not participate in ungodliness. We're not to just walk away, but we are to run. But we're not just to run, right? It's not enough just to run away because if we end up running away from one ungodliness, one sin, we may end up just running right into another one especially if we just run from behavior and don't really examine what's happening in our hearts, right? So if we run from behaviors like, okay, I'm kind of lazy. I like to binge Netflix shows. I gotta stop that, right? Okay, so I'm gonna stop that. I'm gonna run from that and I might run right into something else that does the same thing, really. And so, if I don't examine the heart and go, why, why do I want to binge Netflix so much? What is it that I'm trying to escape from? Is my heart wanting to escape from God, from his promises, right? So if I engage the heart, uh, then I'm not just running to another sin, okay? So, um, Engaging the heart idols is what helps us to do that. 
And so we have to uh, replace the don'ts with do's. And this is why uh, Paul tells us, here's what you're supposed to do. Don't just flee, but you are to pursue, to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. What are the things that we are more prone to chase after, that our culture tells us to chase after? We're told to chase after success, right? Chase after money, chase after power, chase after pleasure. But what Paul says here is that we are to pursue these things, to chase after them. Have you ever watched a car chase, right? The police are in pursuit. They are pursuing justice. Someone's done some crime, right? And you got helicopters flying over. You've got police swerving in and out of traffic, trying to pursue justice, right? And so I like to think of that picture of pursuit, of us pursuing these things. Do you pursue righteousness with that same intensity? Pursue godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. That's Paul's direction. Pursue those things. Chase after them. Don't give up. These words come in pairs. Righteousness and godliness kind of fit together. And so what God's telling us to pursue in those things is to pursue fairness and equity in the way that we deal with people. We're to pursue justice and mercy. We're to handle our responsibilities at home, at work, no matter where we are, with integrity. The next pair, Godliness and faith, those two also go together. Uh, excuse me, faith and love. Righteousness and godliness, then faith and love. So faith and love go together. And so faith and love is this. It's trusting Jesus. It's trusting him in a way that moves us into sacrifice and service to others. We're to pursue that. And then the third one, steadfastness, endurance is really what that is, and gentleness, uh, that we are to uh, be patient in difficult circumstances. That's what endurance is, right? And gentleness is we're to be patient with difficult people. And again, we're to pursue that. We're to chase after those Things, And so these are really what Paul gives as the rules of engagement for fighting the good fight. And so we're to pursue these things in fighting the good fight. We're to chase after them. And they are really ethical commands. And so what we see is a contrast of goodness and evil. But as we go to the next verse... Um, where Paul is moving us in this fight is uh, a doctrinal fight. And so he wants us to move from uh, error to truth. And so this is the thing that has been being fought against throughout the whole book. 
We've seen bad teaching, false teaching. And so Paul says, flee that. Run from false teaching. Don't even entertain it. And so Paul is talking about teaching that contradicts Jesus, teaching that contradicts the apostles, the New Testament, right? And so what the false teachers have been doing is really distorting the gospel. They've been distorting who Jesus is, and they've been distorting how it is that we are saved. One of the cries of the Protestant Reformation really hits on these truths, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, who is revealed in the scriptures alone to the glory of God alone. And false teaching is that which goes against any of those things. We are not uh, saved by our works, but we are saved by the grace of God through the work that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. We cannot earn salvation. It belongs to Jesus and he gives it with grace. We cannot find our salvation in anything other than Jesus Christ alone. No Jesus plus. No faith in Jesus plus anything. It is in Jesus Christ alone that we find salvation. And we cannot add to what the scriptures say. We must see Jesus as he is revealed in the scriptures alone. And our motivation must be for God's glory. And so we are to flee, we are to run from those doctrinal errors and we are to guard the truth. We are to fight the good fight. And so Paul gives us again those ethical commands in the way that we are supposed to fight. He gives these doctrinal commands that's the content that we are supposed to guard. And then he moves into this experiential command. Let's look at the second half here of verse 12. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Take hold of your eternal life. So eternal life, we've talked about this before, is not uh, just a duration, right? Something that's coming, it's, it's over here, it's future. But eternal life is a quality of life. It is life to be had now, here and now. And so it is a present possession. It is something through faith in Jesus that you possess now. You have it. It's a life with Christ in communion with him, in relationship with him and with his people. It's a present possession and it is a future hope because his promise is to remove all the sin from this world. There'll be no more crying, no more pain, no more mourning, no more death. And so if we know what's coming, it changes the way that we experience the present. I like to think of this verse kind of like this. Uh, 
what do we have here? It's Dorothy's slippers from The Wizard of Oz, right? And so her slippers, she had them through the whole thing, right? Her whole time in Oz, she had the slippers, but she didn't take hold of what she already possessed. All you gotta do is click your heels three times, right? So she never took hold of that thing that she already possessed. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. Um, that we're to take hold of the eternal life that we already possess. We possess eternal life, and yet how many of us have really taken hold of it? By that I mean how much of us have made it our own, have fully embraced and enjoyed what we have in Jesus. Well, Paul is seeking to bring all these things together, holiness, truth, and this experience of God, this experience of Jesus Christ. And so it's interesting to think that if you isolate these, you may have a person who pursues holiness with no regard for truth, right? What would that look like? Just be a good person, right? Just behave. On another side of that, you've got a, a person who could pursue truth with no concern for holiness, no concern for godliness. And often what that looks like is, I've got the truth right here and I'm gonna hit you with it like a baseball bat, right? And the third part, one may seek a religious experience while totally disregarding holiness and truth. To just say, oh, I just want a taste of an experience. I just, I want to taste transcendence at some level. But Paul tells us this, that the man of God, the woman of God, must pursue all three flee evil, fight for the truth, take hold of the eternal life you already possess. And so that fighting the good fight is ethical, it's doctrinal, and it's experiential. And then I love what Paul does. He moves to root this charge, okay? So why should we follow this charge? Verse 13, in the sight of God, he says, I charge you in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So why should we follow these commands? Well, Paul says, because of the presence of God. I charge you in the sight of God, in the presence of God. And so this is a good encouragement for us of uh, our awareness of God's presence. Do we live in an awareness daily of his presence? Uh, when I was a kid, I have a, a younger brother that's 10 years younger and I'd have to babysit him. And when he would kind of just be a little rotten, I used to uh, do this thing to him called Santa shaming, right? <laughs> and so it could happen in August. He's doing something, I'm like, 
Whoa, look what happened here. You know who saw that? Santa, which guess what that means? You're getting nothing for Christmas, right? To tell a little four-year-old that, terrible. I wanted him to have this awareness of Santa's always watching, but you know what? God is always present. He's not just looking, watching, that he is present with you, right? In his goodness, in his mercy, in his grace, he is always present with you. Do we have an awareness of that presence? Well, what is to remind us of God's presence? Paul says, God the creator, right? God who gives life, to everything. So when we see living things, when we see people, when we see animals, when we see anything in God's creation, plants, right? We are to be reminded that God is the one who made it. He created it. And God doesn't just create, he also sustains. And so what should make us aware of his presence? Anytime we see anything alive, mm, God is with us. He is here. He is created and he sustains. And then the second thing that Paul gives us to encourage us of God's presence is Jesus, right? So Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, so what is the testimony that Jesus made before Pontius Pilate? Well, let's take a look. John 18. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king? Are you the king of the Jews? And they go back and forth a little bit. In verse, Jesus, uh, in verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. He acknowledges that he is king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. One of the things I find uh, really amazing in this passage is this reference to Pontius Pilate. And you may not be aware of this, but uh, biblical uh, skeptics for years believed that Pontius Pilate did not exist because there is no historical documents, no record of him anywhere except the Bible, right? And so they would say, there was no Pontius Pilate. This guy was made up until the 1960s. In the 1960s, there was this archeological discovery and uh, what we see here is this stone that was discovered. It was uh, discovered in the steps of the theater of Caesarea. And they found the following Latin inscription, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has dedicated to the people of Caesarea a temple in honor of Tiberius. Now what's amazing is in the theater, the stone was actually turned upside down in the construction, which 
is the very thing that preserved the writing, right? And so we could have skipped over that, right? Never found it, but yet we have this historical, archeological evidence of Pontius Pilate, which is amazing. And so Jesus appeared before this historical man, Pontius Pilate, and he gave the good confession that he is king, that he is king of all creation, that he is king of kings and Lord of lords. It's the same confession that we make when we come to faith, that Jesus is the king of the universe and that he is the king of my life. Let's take a look at verse 14. Paul says, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how long do we fight the good fight? Paul says, until Jesus returns. And that is the grounds for faithful endurance. Help is on the way. Jesus is returning and bringing with him the hosts of heaven. And so hold your ground, fight the good fight, because the commander is coming and he is coming with help. Well, how soon is he coming, you might ask? Paul says, God will bring this about in his own time, at the perfect time, at the proper time. Even Jesus himself says, only the Father knows when this will be. And that then moves Paul into this beautiful doxology. He said, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. A beautiful doxology. And Paul is reminding us, God is in control. No one can thwart his plans. He alone is eternally immortal. He has always been and always will be. And he dwells in places that we cannot see. And so because of all that greatness, he is the one to trust. All honor and dominion belong to him. Amen to that, right? Thank you, Paul. So Paul then brings us back to, uh, by the way, we were talking about money as well, right? He gets carried off into how wonderful God is. And let me, let me get back now. Uh, in the prior passage, he was warning the poor, right, about money. But here he addresses the rich. Let's take a look at uh, a few verses here. Verses 17 through 19 in chapter 6. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to be good, to do good rather, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age 
so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life, that they can take hold of that eternal life that they possess, right? And so Paul says, all right, directions for the rich. I've got a warning, right? Because there are dangers with being wealthy. Paul says pride, arrogance. Often with wealth, people will look down on others who have less. If you remember last week, we looked at some global statistics about wealth. And if you remember any of those numbers, you should be assured you are the wealthiest people in the world. We are the wealthiest people in the world. And so this can be a danger for each of us looking down on others because they have less. With wealth, we are prone to think more highly of ourselves because of what we have, right? So that is a danger. Second danger that Paul gives us is false sense of security. Uh, Somebody take out a bill, like dollar bill, $10 bill. Who's got one? Jonathan's going to the wallet. Here we go. What do you got? You got 100. Can I borrow that? I'm just kidding. You can open it up. Look at the back. What does it say in the center or middle? In God we trust. In God we trust. How helpful would it be to read those words every time we spend our money? In God we trust. This warning of don't put your help, your hope rather, in wealth where moth and rust and burglars can destroy, just as Jesus said. How many people throughout history have gone to sleep rich and woken up poor the next day? Many, many. And so the object of our trust is not to be a thing, but it is to be a person. It is to be Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so the dangers of wealth, Paul says, are that it can make us despise our neighbor and it can make us forget God. So there are dangers with wealth, but then Paul says there are duties that come with wealth. I find it fascinating uh, what Paul does not say. He does not say, hey, you know what? Wealth is evil. Rid yourself of it. He does not say that. What does he say? Well, the first thing he says that God wants from the rich is not their money. He wants their heart. God wants the heart of a servant. Paul says that with wealth comes responsibility. And so he gives this duty. Uh, he, He calls them to diversify in their wealth to add one kind of wealth to another. He says, okay, you're rich, excellent. Your duty, be rich in good deeds. Because if you do that, you will reflect the heart of God. Philippians 4.19 says this, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And so when we 
are rich in good deeds, we are doing the very same. We are reflecting the heart of God. And so that means that uh, all of us rich people in the West here, right, that we need to learn to practice generosity. So you kind of threw this question around a little bit, but I want to just give you some more ideas of what even simple generosity might look like, right? Maybe it's giving a seat to someone who you see standing. Maybe it's uh, giving away a parking space. Oh, no, you have this one. I know it's right in front. I want you to have it, right? Wave them in for that parking space. Uh, Allowing someone in line in front of you. Giving a homeless person a meal. How about giving extras for a neighbor? You ever done that? You bought something? You know, I'm gonna get two of these. I wanna take one to my neighbor. Hey, I was thinking of you. I got this at the store. Got one for you too. Um, How about uh, pay for a stranger's meal at a restaurant, right? If you have the resources to do it, you see a family, right, eating together, just pay their bill, don't even tell them. Just tell the, tell the server. Zach, you ever see that happen in, uh, in your work? Somebody, I, I wanna just pay the bill for those people over there. Don't tell them it was me. Yeah, it's a great act of generosity, of kindness. Um, how about bringing in a neighbor's trash cans? How about bringing a cup of coffee for a coworker? Hey, I stopped at uh, whatever coffee spot you like and I got one for you too. Here you go. How about uh, giving the mail carrier, the landscaper, or the trash collector a cold drink? It's hot out here. You're working hard. How about a cold drink for you? Right? So those are simple ways. If you're struggling, how can I practice generosity? There's a great start right there. So I hope that that encourages you and gives you some ideas. So rich Christians, again, of whom we all are, are called to serve and to give. Paul concludes this letter, these final two verses I want to give us, verse 20 and 21. Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. So Paul talks about the faith as this thing that is to be guarded. It's like a deposit. So antiquity, uh, you didn't really have bank accounts, right? So if I was gonna go on a journey, I might give my wealth over to Zach and say, I need you to guard this while I'm gone. This is my most important stuff, so hold on to it. I'll be back. And so Paul's using that same language with the gospel message, with the faith. Guard this. Guard this, take deep care of it, protect it, right? And he says that some have swerved, some have departed, right? Some have drifted away, some translations say. And no one, uh, usually no one slips away with intentionality, like I'm just gonna kinda walk away from the faith, but it's often just a drift, right? a slow drift, and all of a sudden, I'm no longer there, right? And so we're to be careful of that. 
that this pursuing of um, riches and the evil that comes with it can move us away, swerve us away, drift us away. Engaging false teaching can just drift us away, move us away. And so Paul reminds us, don't do it. But the most important thing that he tells us is these last words, right? Because if we hear all these commands, we might think, that sounds wonderful. How can I do that? How can I do those things? Grace be with you all. When we lived in St. Louis, they talked about the y'all translation, right? In uh, Southern California, we say, you guys, right? You guys gonna go to the store? You guys coming over? In St. Louis, they say y'all, right? Because in English, um, the word you is the same for singular as it is plural, right? And so here it's the plural. This letter is written to Timothy, but it is also given to the church at Ephesus, to God's community, and it's given to the church through the ages. It is for y'all, if I may use a little St. Louis there. It's for all of us. The grace of God is the only thing that can transform our hearts to follow any of these commands, to proclaim Christ, proclaim him crucified. It's all by the grace of God. And so Paul leaves us with God's grace. And that is where I leave us in concluding this book. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for this letter that we've gone through over these last several weeks. Lord, thank you for the direction that you've given for our community uh, with how we're to live and move, with uh, how we're to engage in the relationships in your community, uh, with how we're to guard truth, with how we're to think about our money and our responsibilities that come with that. And so, Lord, you don't just give us a bunch of don'ts. Hey, don't do this, don't do that. You don't give us a list of do's unless it comes with help. And so, Lord, we thank you for the grace of your help. We thank you for the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ who has accomplished salvation for us who has forgiven us of sin, who have paid, who's paid for our sins on the cross and who has given us eternal life that we possess now. And so Lord, help us to take hold of it as your people, as your community. We ask all these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this sermon and encourage you to become a regular member of our online community. To find out more about the church, visit our website at newcreationla.com.